I'm Sophie Wagstaff from the University of Portsmouth, and today I'm going to talk to film historian Dr. Alexander Sargent about all things fantasy film and the future of cinema post-COVID-19. Part of what we like about these movies isn't just what they are saying, but how they are saying it. Alex, you are a lecturer in film and media studies and your expertise is in fantasy and animation. And I'm really interested about this word fantasy and what exactly the fantasy genre is. Basically, the the problem or what got me interested in fantasy cinema is exactly the question you're asking. And it's one of these things that people both uh, seem to know. You know, it's a it's a genre that's, um, you know, if you put on your Netflix or your Disney Plus or other streaming networks are available, you will find a, a, a pre-installed device that says search for fantasy movies. So obviously it must mean something. But when you start to think about what exactly it does mean, uh, you get yourself into all manner of, um, you know, th- knots in thinking. Every kind of definition you come at the the problem kind of doesn't provide very nice solutions in that you could define fantasy very simply as a type of storytelling where things happen that are impossible. As soon as you say that out loud, what impossible means becomes quite difficult to then uh, define. Because, for example, I watched uh, Love Actually over the Christmas period, and I would argue the bit where the little child and Liam Neeson run through the uh, uh, airport in search of the long-lost love and manage to get there just at the boarding gate um, was impossible. But I wouldn't necessarily call Love Actually a fantasy movie. So... Fantasy basically is a term we've had to create in Western society to, to, to describe a whole bunch of different stories that basically do the opposite of what we think good stories should do. So we've been sort of taught to think that stories should be realistic, they should be believable, they should sort of reflect the world as it is and deal with serious problems. And basically, fantasy is a word we've created to describe all the stories that don't do that, all the stories that seem to celebrate impossibility, in cel- celebrate incredulity, get us to enjoy looking at things we know don't exist and we don't believe in. And that's kind of the, the crux of my interest in it, in that if you if you take yourself down that level of thinking, why we like fantasy stories becomes a really interesting question, because why on earth do we spend so much of our leisure time jumping into things that we know couldn't happen, don't want to believe in, and yet find exciting and often comforting and affirming uh, in a way we don't with, say, horror stories, which are probably the flip side because they're stories that scare us. Fantasy doesn't scare us. It excites us with impossibility. That's so interesting. And I find as well that sometimes, Alex, I mean, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan, so I would consider that Mm -hmm. fantasy. I remember Mm -hmm. when I was really, really into it, I said to one of my friends, I was like, oh, you've got to watch it. It's absolutely amazing. It's so brilliant. And she was like, no, I'm not watching it because I don't do fantasy like I don't like dragons I don't like that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and I said just give it a chance and watch it and she did and she now loves it and is completely Mm -hmm. obsessed with it so it's quite interesting isn't it some people are a bit anti that whole you know something that's not the real world and but my friend I totally won her around and she's now a big fan well, that's interesting because that once we start going, okay, so fantasy actually describes something that's very broad and very kind of nebulous. You'll find in sort of scholarly theories of fantasy that actually, when you start to unpack all these different things that we describe as fantasies, really we need more words and more definitions. Because, for example, there's a huge difference between something like Game of Thrones, something like Mary Poppins, something like The Wizard of Oz, or indeed something like Love Actually. Right? You could argue all four of them have elements of fantasy in them, um, but. 
they're doing them in very different ways. Fantasy scholarship is very interested in what we call the different rhetorics of fantasy. Some fantasy stories like to sort of, you know, throw us in at the deep end and just sort of immerse us in a in a second world like Game of Thrones. Some stories like to set things in our own world and then have something arrive that disrupts it. Other stories aren't necessarily what I might call fantasy films, but have elements of fantasy in. And when I'm teaching this to my students, I always use the example of Greece, right? So if anyone hasn't seen Greece, spoiler alert, but but Greece obviously is not exactly a realistic movie in many ways or shape or form. I think that's not a controversial uh, opinion, but I wouldn't necessarily say Greece is a fantasy movie, except about 30 seconds before the film ends, where the car lifts up and drives <laughs> off into the sunset, uh, into the heavens, and they all start waving. And I remember watching that as a kid and thinking, what earth is going on now? And, and it's because there's something very strange happening in the moment that trips it into a different register of communication. So when people say they don't do fantasy, I can usually find an example of fantasy mm. they absolutely do do. They just don't know it's a fantasy or don't want to describe it in such terms. So Alex, I know your sort of specialist area is the history and theory of fantasy storytelling, and that's with particular expertise in the Hollywood fantasy genre. So can you give me some examples of, of, of films in that particular genre? Sure. I mean, again, it, it's all quite fluctuating and changing, but um, the project I've just completed uh, with a book out uh, the summer of 2021, for anyone listening, is about <laughs> Hollywood fantasy films over the last sort of hundred years and the different ways in which those films encourage us to use our imaginations. And what I try to do in my project is chart the different types of sort of popular fantasy films that have come out of Hollywood. Um, so I, I kind of stick with very canonical examples. So I don't think listeners will necessarily think my choices are controversial. So I do case studies on things like The Wizard of Oz. Uh, Mary Poppins is a case study. Um, one of the Harryhausen sword and sorcery movies. So The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, but I could have done Jason and the Argonauts or Clash of the Titans or one of those. The Neverending Story comes up. Hook comes up. The Lord of the Rings comes up. And I finish off with Fantastic Beasts and that franchise. So I'm, I'm picking films that have delib I deliberately want to sort of go, okay, we might not all agree exactly what all fantasy films look like, but, but these are films that kind of largely popular culture has engaged with as fantasy texts. And what I do is I look at the different kind of strategies that are in those films and what kind of imaginative response they seem to encourage within the spectator. Because I don't think we as film scholars have got a very good definition or a very good understanding of the role of the imagination in our understanding of the sort of theoretical ways in which people watch movies. Um, film theory is very interested in realism. It's very interested in the ways in which the camera looks real, the way in which the camera um, functions almost as illusion for reality. And there's been a lot of political work on this and a lot of sort of philosophical work on how cinema is a, is a vehicle for realism. But I think fantasy is exactly the opposite. What it does is it goes, this is not real, but you can enjoy it anyway. And so what I do is I sort of mix close analysis of these films with sort of psychological and psychoanalytic theories of, of the imagination and try to explore how we can see how different storytelling strategies in these movies kind of trigger different imaginative responses in us. And, and that's kind of how they work as fantasy films rather than as works of realism. And, and Alex, you just mentioned there the, the film The Wizard of Oz, which I, I've seen on your website is your absolute favourite and it's obviously a classic. It's a film that's actually very contradictory in that on the one hand the film the key sort of two lines that have echoed in that film are Toto I don't think we're in Kansas anymore and there's no place like home. In a way that kind of 
embodies my fascination with the movie in that on the one hand the film is a very very deeply conservative text it's a story about a little girl who longs to go beyond her own guard uh, her own front yard and then learns that actually the real world's really scary and what she should probably do is stay at home with her auntie and uncle who let's be honest don't seem that sort of nice to her and and what's going to happen it looks like mrs gulch is going to take toto away from her and and there doesn't seem to be a particularly happy ending uh, in this sort of dreary dull kansas and yet she's supposed to sort of accept it and so that ending always reads a bit strange to me and what's particularly strange because if you compare it with the other key line Toto I don't think we're in Kansas um, anymore so much of the film is about celebrating spaces that are beyond our own back garden it's you know over the rainbow the film is this technicolor marvel and it's this joy in being in new spaces and that's what the film ultimately is about so it's a basically an hour and a half movie where you get to enjoy being in new spaces new imagined lands see the possibilities the imagination offers for you only for the final 10 minutes for it to tell you that there's no place like home and it's that kind of inherent contradiction in the movie that makes me kind of want to re-watch it because i still don't think i quite get it What's your what's your sort of favourite modern classic at the moment? So something maybe in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Okay, so a film that really kind of made me intellectualise my interest in fantasy. I've always been a fantasy fan. I'm afraid I, I'm not a card-carrying sort of member of Dungeons and Dragons or anything like that, but I, I certainly liked the films when I was a, a child and, and, and always found value in fantasy. But I remember going to see Pan's Labyrinth when I was um, an undergraduate student, um, I remember being so struck by sort of the way that film was using fantasy and and it's such an important film in its attempt to sort of show people and I think it has done very well at showing a lot of audience members that fantasy not only doesn't have to be frivolous, is never frivolous because it's always connected to reality and it's always connected to um, you know our understanding of life. It's just sort of a very different way of doing it. And that film blending sort of you know really lovely folkloric you know Wizard of Oz esque elements with this sort of really dark, brutal story of the Spanish Civil War um, really kind of struck a chord with me. And, I, and I'm very privileged because I now get to work with um, Professor uh, Deborah Shaw here at Portsmouth, who, who is a, an expert on Guillermo del Toro and knows far more about the movie than I do. Um, but I remember that lit a touchstone in me and thinking, right. I've always thought fantasy is more interesting than people seem to think it is. And this is the first time I've watched a movie where the filmmaker seems to think that too. Other than that, I actually think a lot of the really great work, unfortunately, in fantasy storytelling is happening on television. So yes, I loved Game of Thrones too. Um, I think that His Dark Materials adaptation that's currently doing the, the rounds is, is is a really, really wonderful adaptation and does a lot of interesting things with the source novel. And you know what? I'll, uh, I'll have a Marvel film every now and again. I think the, the epic kind of opera that's being played out in popular culture that is the Marvel franchise has its place. Uh, I don't know if I need one three times a year, but I'll go with that as well. So I, I'll take it in any different forms but yeah Pan's Labyrinth's the one that's really sticking out to me. So Alex I'm ashamed to say that I've never seen Pan's Labyrinth and I know and I've, I've read about it and I've heard oh. about it and it's one of those that I've always <laughs> thought I must I must get around to watching that and I haven't yet so now that you've mentioned it again I'm determined to put that on my watch list. Mm. My absolute favourite films are the the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. What, what are your thoughts on those? I just absolutely love his Batman movies. In the same way that I could argue Pan's Labyrinth was a very legitimising film in terms of fantasy in general, what Nolan did with the sort of, you know, The Dark Knight uh, especially is somehow kind of, you know, is, is make comic books 
Oscar worthy. Yeah. And this blending of real life social political concerns. You know, the film is is certainly The Dark Knight is as much about 9-11 as it is about Batman and, and Gotham. We have this sort of te- spect, this un irrational unknown terrorist um sort of you know wrecking havoc you've got various attempts to deal with him um increasing levels of surveillance uh and increasing torture culture so it's very much rooted in the politics of its time uh and and i think it it has a lot of interesting things to say i'm actually my next project is probably going to be on superhero movies and i'm very interested in how those films stage ethical questions and encourage us to think and talk about ethical problems I have to mention, because my boss asked me to, when the next Studio Ghibli film is coming out, he's a really big fan and he loves Howl's Moving Castle and Spirited Away. I haven't seen either of those, I'm afraid. There's controversy raging at the moment, which links to my work with fantasy animation, is that is that Studio um, Ghibli, Ghibli, I'm, listen, people who wish to check out my podcast will, will hear me pronounce that in about eight different ways, and I apologise for how it's supposed to be pronounced. But, but, but they've just released a film called Earwig and the Witch, which is um, Studio Ghibli's first first CGI movie. Um, Well, it hasn't gone down well, shall we say. Uh, And I think what's interesting about I haven't seen it yet and I'm not quite sure it's made it to the UK yet it's certainly out in Japan and I think it's made it to the States um, I'll have to have a look I think what's interesting about that is that I could have probably predicted that reaction in that in that we haven't talked about animation very much in this which is you know uh, the other I guess hat I wear and it's very interesting that as much as we could talk about different fantasy stories coming from different cultures and what makes um, these the Ghibli movies so interesting I think is that they offer a very, another very different kind of fantasy storytelling register from the western tradition they're often much more interested in blending fantasy and reality in a more sophisticated way. Um, if you think of things like Spirited Away, they're actually often quite difficult to watch as a sort of Western viewer, and yet they found a really, really sort of mass audience. But but, but as much as we could talk about all these different fantasy modes that exist across different cultures, this is true of animation as well. And what's interesting at the moment is that styles of animation are almost becoming sort of nationalised or, 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 or belonging to certain cultures in that, in that part Part of the charm of the Ghibli kind of stable is its cell animatedness, you know, despite the fact that actually they use a lot of CGI in their movies, because these movies have a certain hand-drawn feel to them, that's part of what we like about them. The same thing happened with Aardman, the British, you know, Bristol-based stop-motion company, famous for things like Wallace and Gromit and Chicken Run and things like that. They had a massive trouble when they tried to move into CGI because it was felt that it was somehow betraying their their roots. Um, So as much as we could talk about different types of fantasy stories, the way these stories are told are actually also part of the sort of global phenomenon of popular culture because because we so associate cgi with the sort of big u.s american capital industry um that it almost feels a shame when other cultures use it at the same time now whether we that we should feel like that is a is an interesting question but it's certainly true that part of what we like about these movies isn't just what they are saying but how they are saying it. So I would like to check out um, Erwig and the Witch because I'd be interested to see if it feels like a Ghibli movie, even though it looks or, or, or certainly embraces CGI technology and whether they do it again after what's been quite a negative reaction. Report back. So Alex, I've just got a couple of um, last questions for you and I'm just going to ask you how you think COVID has affected the industry. Badly. I'm not an industry expert, um, but from the contacts I do have in it and the, the sort of studying it as a, as a sort of scholar from afar, I think it's going to be interesting to see 
how this all plays out. I think I've got a level level of optimism for it. You know, the streaming, if we're talking about will they make moving images for our entertainment, that doesn't seem to be particularly under threat. Streaming culture was already on the rise prior to COVID. And like many things, what COVID tends to do is dramatise something that was kind of already there, but kind of give it a, a, a firecracker. Um, and, and I think streaming has, you know, soared over the last sort of 12 months. So it will be interesting to see what role the traditional multiplex or the cinema plays in life going forward. Uh, call me an optimist. I feel like us film historians have these kind of questions every decade. Every decade, cinema is in crisis since basically at the advent of television. Cinema is dead. Cinema, uh, you know, televisions are going to replace cinema. Streaming is going to replace cinema. VHS is going to replace cinema. DVDs are going to replace cinema. And usually cinema some fi- finds a way to survive. Now, it's changed. And I think what I'd like to see, but doesn't seem to be what happened so far, is that I'd like to see cinema become more community focused. I'd like to see less reliance on packing these multiplexes with as many of with six films, all of them, you know, made by about three different studios. Because I think more variety in the cinematic viewing experience would be good. But if it goes the other way and embraces what we call the roadshow model, and 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 cinema becomes this event where these big spectacles rage out i i see that continuing too it's it's like all aspects of life with covid i think i think it puts under threat things and it challenges us to think about what we value and what we don't and perhaps some things we will let go i'm certainly extremely excited to be back in a cinema when it's safe and able to do so and i've got a feeling audiences will be too i think it's it's shown us the limitations of what streaming can do as much as it's shown us the benefits as well so it'll survive i you know don't quote me on it but i i think i think it'll be all right and i think actually um, in terms of fantasy and animation, those are the things that have always done very well in cinema. So um, I suspect that will continue forevermore. That's really interesting, Alex. And I'm totally with you. I, I love going to cinema and I've really missed it and very much look forward to going back if we if we can at some point. Is there anything, any particular film, um, animation, TV series that we should be getting excited about that you're really looking forward to that's coming online this year? Keep an eye out for the last uh, series of His Dark Materials. I've plugged that already, but I think I honest, I think that's a really, really terrific adaptation. And what's terrific about it is it isn't that faithful, but yet at the same time, it's extremely faithful at the same time. Um, I've yet to check out WandaVision, which I know is doing the rounds at the moment. And I think that seems to be offering a very interesting new take on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and, and other than that, you know, fantasy is bigger than anything I can keep up with. You know, it will exist in small, independent studios making little strange films that I've never heard of until they come out. It'll exist in big HBO budgeted series. And I, I know Guillermo del Toro, for example, the, the, the director of Pan's Labyrinth, has got a long-awaited sort of Pinocchio adaptation that sounds really interesting. Uh, and I'm looking forward to checking out. There's a new adaptation of Peter Pan called Wendy that's coming soon, I think. There's lots to look forward to. I just hope I can get to see it on a big screen. Wow, Alex, it's absolutely lovely talking to you and it feels like such a nice topic to chat about um, (laughs) when obviously COVID is making everything a bit gloomy at the moment. So thank you very, very much for your time. It's really, really nice to have a chat. And like I say, I think we should catch up again and do Podcast Mark 2 and the next time we'll focus a bit more on the animation side of things. (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks for having me on, Sophie. Lovely to chat. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about studying at the University of Portsmouth, please visit our website, www.port.ac.uk.